Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Graham Bright. Graham is the Head of Compliance and Operations at Euroexim Bank, a specialist trade finance institution facilitating global trade. Graham, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. It's a pleasure and thank you for the opportunity. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us as well, Graham. Now, the the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. Um, So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation just for a moment, first and foremost, what does that word leader actually mean to you and how does it resonate? It's a great question. And in our industry, uh, being a leader, as far as we're concerned, is not about how much profit you're making. It's about the contribution you and your team can collectively make to ensure that our clients get the best deal possible, the most secure, the most realistic, and the most trusted way forward as well. So for us, leadership is all of those things. It's confidence, trust. Um, It's the way in which we do business, so it's reputation as well. So being a leader, very specifically, is having a great team around you, building that team, having the respect of that team, but it's a two-way process as well, understanding what they're thinking, collecting their experience, and making sure we can collaborate to put the best experience for us forward for our customers as well. And in the context of Eurox in Banker, Graham, if we talk about your leadership style for a second, how would you describe that? Well, we're a very flat organization from the point of view that our board is in St. Lucia. Mm. We have a rep office in London. We have a very instant and very fast communication between all of those people as well. So we're not bogged down in bureaucracy. And I think that the leadership style is one which makes it pervades through the organization very quickly. Uh, no is no. This is in compliance, as you know. <laughs> compliance will always say no immediately and then find and other people will find reasons why you try and say yes. Uh, we, the bank, really like to say yes as much as possible, but we're very, very pragmatic in the way we do things. And our board are very pragmatic as well in order to make sure that we do the right approach, keep our reputation, keep the reputation of our clients in place as well. So, as we say, the whole of the board and the way that we work as a company is very much guided towards rapid communication the best communication possible, cost-effective ways forward, economic ways of doing things, and again, providing a good customer experience. And I can imagine that that structure has served quite well in keeping the communication channels open and keeping operations going during the recent COVID-19 pandemic as well, hasn't it? You're quite well geared to that sort of remote style of working in a sense. Yes, we are. I mean, right from the beginning, our headquarters is in St. Lucia, where we have people on the ground there. They're equally uh, impacted by COVID-19. They're not allowed out in the same way. Uh, They've had many, many of their shops, and the way that they do their business completely changed over the last couple of months. And for us in London, we're still very familiar with a remote way of working. We also have a, a rep office that we're building in India and in Singapore, so the whole way in which our company is incepted is, is having these remote offices, great communication between us, and we're having that all times of the day as well. So we have had to change very slightly the way in which we're doing things, but, just, but 
not being in the office has made real, really no impact to us whatsoever. We still have the right number of people serving our clients in the same way. And the important message here is that trade is continuing. And we're making sure that we're well positioned when we come out and we provide this, this situation of new normal, that we're there and we're ready to support the increase in business, which is going to unlikely will very likely come straight away once we move out of lockdown in most cases. I think that's exactly right, because people are going to be really looking to um, connecting trade through frictionless payments, foreign exchanges, and your company is very well placed to um, essentially be there to help with that. So there will be opportunities as a result of this quite difficult and tragic time, and business will be there to take advantage. Yeah. If I could just come back on one point as well, which is very interesting from, again, leadership and where we're going as a company. Mm. What we're seeing at the moment is the trade wars between the US and China. Mm-hmm. That means that if you want to get hold of your goods which are currently embargoed or unsanctioned, you look for other places to go to find them. Supply chains are available in other countries. And where you may have in the past not wanted specifically to do business, for example, within a country in Africa, yet those countries have the manpower, the resource, the raw materials, which are becoming very much more interesting to keep supply chains open at an economic price. And so a lot of businesses are moving and viewing those areas as potential replacements or alternative providers for manufacturing, especially for the Far East, where, again, it's very easy to get goods through Dubai. There's seven, I think it was seven million people who were involved in a very, very close proximity to Dubai, 2.1 billion people within four hours of Dubai. So movement of goods is very simple from Africa through very large trading ports into other ports of the Far East. So this is going to rapidly change the way we look at where goods are coming from, pornography of goods generally. And whilst we're on the topic of uh, China, just out of interest, it may well be the case yeah. that it doesn't apply to Eurobex in bank at all. But there's been a lot of uh, debate over the proposed new national security law for the Hong Kong territory. Um, perhaps, Graham, you could share some thoughts on that and maybe shed some light on whether or not that's going to be something that you'll be keeping an eye on. I think we're keeping an eye on it. We have many of our clients who are buying from China. We don't have a lot of goods going the other way. We do see stuff from Hong Kong, which is moving around. Um, I, we always hope for a peaceful resolution of the whole thing. Uh, it's just a situation we have to watch very carefully. It's going to be interesting to see uh, what comes about with that because there is a lot of concern that their sort of special status as a trading hub could well be compromised them as a result of this. Um, Shifting focus slightly, uh, Graham, toward the um, the future now, and particularly sort of younger mm-hmm. generations looking to perhaps sort of make it in leadership roles in business after this uh, pandemic. Based upon the experience that you have accumulated, what sort of advice would you give to somebody maybe starting their first day in a leadership role, particularly within your industry? First advice is listen. Listen to the experience around you try to format that and, and always find a way. One of the things that I was uh, very keen on right at the beginning, is, and it's going to sound quite strange, is, is the um, this is almost like a Star Trek type way of working. In the next generation, the captain always called for suggestions, great ideas, always listen to all of them. Not to think that you can make a profit immediately, also making sure the right infrastructure is around you, the right communications are out there. 
And again, it's not driven solely by profit. It's driven by determination to find the right customers, serve those customers properly, and do repeat business with those clients. And controlling your cash flow, keeping a steady eye on cash flow, not trying to build it exponentially very quickly, but making sure you have a structured approach to the whole thing as well. But listening, I think, is one of the key ones, and trusting the people around you as well. Always listen to suggestions from everybody that's there, and say young leaders in particular think they may know it all, but refer to the experience around you to make sure you can glean, gather, and make the best use of all that experience that's there. I think that's incredibly important. Um, Nelson Mandela, in fact, once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And as leaders, especially young leaders, it's important to note that we are not alone in our endeavours. There are so many people we can learn from. We can have mentors, even in the people around us who we can pick ourselves. And while we're on that topic, uh, Graham, um, is there any chance that perhaps um, you could tell me maybe some of the most influential and inspirational people who've maybe had an impact on your career as you've developed? And if nobody sticks out, maybe some of the key experiences that you've had? Key influences, um, not necessarily by name, but some of the traits that they have potentially. And that is that in a sales situation, knowing when to back off, knowing to how to understand what a client really wants as opposed to what you want to sell them, uh, understanding the economy around you as well, realizing that not every product is right for every market, and that every culture needs to be identified very carefully. Business in Africa is different to business in the United States. Mm. You have to understand, have people on the ground, and learn from that as well. I actually had the privilege of meeting Nelson Mandela when I was working, and I happened to be in South Africa in in Johannesburg. Uh, The meeting was one minute, and yet the aura of that person was just incredible. And sometimes you meet people in business and just shaking their hand, you know there is a trust element, a confidence element, and an inspiration element that comes from them as well. It's incredibly insightful. And sometimes you get almost a feeling that you are indeed in the presence of greatness. I also had the privilege of being in a meeting with Bill Clinton uh, when I attended a Ripple conference in in a room of 400 people. And I still felt he was talking to me personally which is a remarkable thing, a real statesman-like view. And not only like Bill Clinton, but from that point of view, as a statesman, that feeling, that aura was there. And that was quite inspirational as well. So there are times, and I've felt it, it feels rather strange, but almost like a bodily experience. You feel the aura and the power of somebody talking to you. And sometimes they don't even have to say anything. It's just being in the presence of those people. So it's, again, good to understand who those people are. If you can get to be close to them in any way to learn from that experience. Experience certainly is one of the greatest teachers out there, for sure, as you rightly say there, Graham. And having touched on the past just for a moment, it only serves that we address the future before we do wrap things up on the programme today. Um, Do give me an idea of what you envision the next year will hold for yourself and for EuroX Inbank and what you hope to achieve as we move through the current situation and begin to look to the long-term future. Because that partnership with Ripple especially still very much paying dividends. Yeah. We're planning certainly to expand on that relationship and that's to find more counterparties to work with 
really to expand the whole of the global uh, location of counterparties and also to roll out the, the on-demand liquidity. And the liquidity is absolutely vital for companies trying to work in restricted economies, especially if you want to be paid in local currency and you want to pay away into somebody's local currency without switching into a fiat currency like dollars, which are very expensive and hard to come by in certain countries. And then Ripple is able, with the ODL capability, to really alleviate that whole problem. So it's on-demand liquidity. You've got the amount you want. You've got the connectivity you need. And you've got the access to currency for both sides, maintaining your own cash flow. So by using a frictionless payment mechanism like that, it's become very, very uh, optimal for for banks, uh, for companies to do business that way. For EuroX in longer term, by using that payment channel, by expanding the number of customers we've got, we're already planning and building one of the largest sales forces in trade finance on the planet. And we're doing that through our subsidiary company in India, where we plan to have more than 250 sales people serving the needs of India going forward in the trade finance space. And that's the issuance of letters of credit, standby letters of credit. Because again, trade is going on and trade is still throughout the COVID-19 period, even increasing as we speak. We will have, say, the greater sales team available. And we're also expanding the number of physical locations that we're looking at to really support international trade. So again, Singapore, Dubai, Africa. And then we're able to, through St. Lucia and London, also look at serving customers in every other location as well. So it's a very exciting time for us. It's a time of great change, a time of expansion, it's a time of great vision. And I think what we're, we're planning is to be not only recognized as one of the 25 top global brands in the world, where a number of magazines have actually seen and, and looked at us from a technology point of view, but to be the permanent player in trade across the globe. Seems like there's a great deal of ambition, uh, Graham, and it's fantastic uh, to uh, certainly hear that. And, you know, I think it would actually be fantastic at some point in the next year, given how informative it's been discussing some of these initiatives, to perhaps have you back on just to see how things are getting on in a few months' time in that respect, for sure. Well, look in the press, and I'm sure you'll be uh, quite inspired by what we're doing for the whole business community. Likewise, I um, do share the same uh, thoughts, uh, Graham, and it would be great from a listener's perspective as well to certainly get more of that out there in the uh, the months to come. Um, I've got to say, it's been a really informative and a really pleasurable experience having you on the uh, the programme today, Graham. It's been fantastic speaking with you, and um, do thank you again for um, taking the time to join us. Most importantly, however, in the meantime, until we do touch base again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with the current pandemic situation as of yet. Thank you very much indeed. And we echo that thought. And everybody, please stay safe, stay inside if necessary. To say that trade continues, use those electronic links and let's get trade moving globally. That's exactly it. To those tuning in, do stay home where you can, do look after yourselves and do stay safe because it really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, I was just speaking there to Graham Bright, the Head of Compliance and Operations at Euroexim Bank. Coming up next on the programme today, however, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City 
But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff. And that is coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system 
probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time it may be overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before I was I was playing 
Um, I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had the, the impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into him because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, Not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, out. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard nosed professional uh, top quality people, and that was again the leadership that I'll show he, he got people in together that were very very strong personally um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had we were very I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals um, we had some great players but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with you know over the years and Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, had a glance round, you know." 
Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you into. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You've want, you got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, 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 a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make it again, laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... It would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with... Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really. Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. 
he has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. 
we have some great I players. You... We have some great players, of course, but without the attitude <laughs> alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is showed... team. The word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over it, go over the past, and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.